Hey, oh, excuse me, pardon me. Hello, welcome to Hollywood Party. I'm glad you made it back. One of our party people gave me a suggestion for a potential guest. So today we'll be getting to know MGM's boy next door and eternal Mr. Nice Guy, Van Johnson. But is he nice enough to make it on our list? Grab a drink and join the party. Charles Van Dell Johnson was born August 25, 1916 in Newport, Rhode Island. That town was known as the summer vacation spot for the mega-rich of the Gilded Age, but Van was not born into one of those families. His dad, Charles, was an immigrant from Sweden who was very athletic and had crazy amounts of self-control. His mom, Loretta, became an alcoholic because of her marriage. Charles wasn't abusive, just no emotion, ever. Like, I don't even know how she got pregnant. So she abandoned her family when Van was three. He said he was too young to comprehend the divorce then and deliberately tried not to for the rest of his life. Super healthy. His paternal grandmother moved in and gave Van some affection. Something's better than nothing, I suppose. Van was drilled in manners, neat appearance, and a sense of duty. Later in life, Van's dad said, There was a rumor going around that I was a strict sourpuss father. I was strict about a few things, and one was Van's health. I never spanked him in my life. He was my buddy, and all it took was a hard look to straighten him out. So because of all those hard looks, Van learned from an early age to restrain himself, hide his feelings, and not give in to impulses. His dad even made him go swimming in the ocean in the wintertime. Van went to the circus and became obsessed with tightrope walkers and trapeze artists. He was so into it that he got a little job and bought himself rope and rings to practice. He saw his first movie in 1924 and thought it would be grand to make others feel happy. He would put on shows and charge his friends to come see them, but he was way too shy to do school plays. When he was 12, his grandma died and he had to take on more chores and was basically emotionally inarticulate. He and his dad had nothing in common because Van had dreams and his dad, let's say it all together, was not ambitious. Van was super resentful of that. Each summer he noticed all the glamorous rich people coming in and then leaving. So he knew he had to get out of that small town. He started using the little money he'd get doing odd jobs and took dance classes, violin lessons, but he never dated. He was very focused on learning to be a star and getting out. He loved going to the movies to see how the audiences reacted, saying, I could almost feel how they had forgotten their own lives and troubles and maybe the narrowness of their existence. How for a while they were carried out of themselves and could live so much more, so many more lives. He graduated high school in 1934, and the yearbook printed their prophecy about him. Van Johnson will be a dancer, for his snake hips will be known. You'll soon see him performing before the English throne. Like most high schools, Van was not provided with any guidance on how to achieve his goals. He kept books at a plumbing office where his dad worked, then, like most creative people, became a waiter at a tourist trap called The Barnacle. He became friends with a female manager at the restaurant, and she encouraged him to go to New York. His dad did not approve of his dream, but agreed to let him go to New York and told him, come back when you've had enough of your silly dreams. Thanks, Dad. Hollywood was the ultimate goal, but New York was closer. He hadn't seen his mom in 16 years, so he went and stayed with her. She was remarried, and it 
shouldn't be surprising that the reunion was not a love fest. So when things didn't work out, he ended up staying at the Knickerbocker Hotel for $9 a week. The only advice his dad gave him was to never eat a rare hamburger, solid, and always wipe off silverware at restaurants. Yes, I agree. I worked in fine dining for the majority of my life. It is gross everywhere. Well, one place in Beverly Hills was okay, but most places, nasty as hell. If you want horror stories, DM me. You might never want to eat out again. But it's 2020, so you probably won't anyways. Van pounded the pavement, and it was exactly like the God of Dance number in Singing in the Rain. He was locked out of his room for not paying the rent once. He just did not look back at this time in his life as a happy time. Like, up until this point, his life hadn't been happy, so... He took singing lessons next to 21 and loved to watch the celebrities go in and out. This next part is going to sound like a movie, but it actually happened. Van heard a piano playing one day and he stood in the doorway to listen. A producer in the room noticed Van was holding his tap shoes and said, hey, come on in. Leonard Sillman had helped Tyrone Power and Henry Fonda become stars, and after seeing Van dance, he put him in the new faces of 1936. During the show, he became pals with Keenan Wynn and his girlfriend, Evie. When the show was finished, he worked one summer in the Catskills, then joined a group called Eight Men of Manhattan with Mary Martin, and they would work midnight shows at the Rainbow Room. In 1939, he got a role in Too Many Girls, and that is how he met Desi Arnaz. He went with most of the crew to do the film version at RKO, and he said it was a dream place to work. He had to go back to New York after they finished, but got cast in the chorus of Pal Joey. Van was so good, they kept giving him more stuff to do. He ended up with 10 lines and his own song. Not too shabby. Van went back to California and tested for Columbia, but Harry Cohen didn't like him. Van was sick of Broadway and afraid that he just didn't photograph well. So he went home for a visit. Of course, his dad thought he was home for good. And Van was super bummed out because like most people who move away from a small town, then go back to visit, he realized he had nothing in common with these people. Two days into his visit, Warner's calls and offers him a six month contract for $300 a week. He said it was like asking a drowning man if he would consider being rescued by a yacht. He couldn't get on the train west fast enough. Nobody picked him up at the station and they immediately used the six week layoff clause in his contract. When they finally did get around to using him, they said, leading men don't have light hair. Didn't we just talk about Danny Kay getting his hair bleach blonde to make his nose seem smaller? Like, keep your story straight, studio system. So they ended up dyeing Van's beautiful red hair black. Warners did not pick up his option, so he went over to June Havocs to say goodbye. They'd been friends since Broadway. She told him to stay in California for a while, so he moved in with her. Lucy and Desi took him to dinner at Chasen's to catch up, and he told him his sob story. At the table next to them was Billy Grady, the head of talent over at MGM. So Lucy stood up, dragged Van over to Billy's table, and she was so convincing that Van tested the next day at MGM opposite Donna Reed. They offered him a contract and noted that all of his spots would have to be handpicked. He was six foot two, redheaded, and he didn't have a persona yet. Van said, as soon as I walked through those gates at MGM, I knew I was home. One day, Joan Crawford asked him to come play tennis and then have dinner with her. When he got back that night, he was very serious and he told June, you know, that's the way to live. Everything in that house is proper and right. You know, June, I'm gonna be a big star. I have to live in an expensive house and have a wife who can entertain graciously and who can speak to the press properly. Why don't we get married? How romantic, who could turn that down? Well, she did. And MGM found out that he was living with June and made him get his own place. He worked with Jeanette McDonald, who less than a decade prior was a megastar for MGM. He said, I saw what bad health and bad luck can do to a girl like that. I learned by shock that a career must be guarded every minute. 
He was cast in Somewhere I'll Find You. This is the movie Clark Gable was making when Carol died. And Van recalled that Gable didn't have much humor and was always fighting a weight problem. Damn, his wife just died, Van. Like, <sighs> sorry he can't be your personal clown. Also cast in this film was Van's old friend, Keenan Wynn. This is Keenan's full name, Francis Xavier Aloysius James Jeremiah Keenan Wynn. Imagine that up in lights. He was from an acting family. His mom was an actress and an alcoholic. Yes, he inherited that from her. His dad was Edwin. If you don't know him, yes you do. Everyone knows him. He was the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. He was way more than that, but that's just how everyone's kind of introduced to him now. Also, not a fabulous father. At all. Keenan said, I am the product of the worst parents, and at a very young age, I went to boarding school. I was raised by housekeepers and chauffeurs and yacht captains. In 1939, Ed called his agent and told him he needed to go to Boston to check on Keenan, who was going to jump off the ledge of a hotel because Ed couldn't or wouldn't, I don't know, go check on his son. Luckily, the agent did a good job and Keenan clearly did not commit suicide. He did end up marrying actress Eve Abbott. She gave up her career to manage his. He said, I was Evie's hobby more than her hubby. Their marriage wasn't wonderful, but that last statement didn't give it away. Van was always their third wheel. Keenan and he would joke around, and Van would notice all of Eve's new clothes and anything she'd change around the house, unlike her husband. By 1942, Van was finally starting to get noticed. Hedda Hopper called him the greatest Bobby Sox idol in America. Teenage girls were breaking into his apartment and locking themselves in his bathroom, throwing pebbles at his window late at night. He loved it. This was what he was waiting for. Everyone at MGM was impressed with him. He was always on time, prepared, and never gave the directors any shit, was enthusiastic and driven. This is all because he was covering up a major inferiority complex. But at least they didn't have to put him on pills to get him to go to work. Image was everything, and Van was always taking photos with an axe or in a plaid shirt or holding a football. He was supposed to be an outdoorsman. In reality, he hated working out and preferred reading indoors. He's pale. We don't belong outside. It hurts. He did buy a motorcycle and joined Keenan's motorcycle gang called Moraga Spit and Polish Club, and they would meet at Hog Canyon. That is so bad and so cheesy and so true. Van preferred playing volleyball over at Gene Kelly's house. I don't blame him. When he was cast in A Guy Named Joe, Van got to work with his idol, Spencer Tracy. But it was Irene Dunn who took extra time to make him feel more comfortable and really help him nail his role. Two weeks into shooting, Van was driving Keenan, Evie, and two servicemen to MGM to catch a special screening of Keeper of the Flame. A car ran a red light at Venice Boulevard in Clarington, smashing into Van's convertible and causing it to roll. It's March 1943. What seatbelts? Van was thrown from the car, hit his head on the curb. He tried to stand up, but fell down. He thought it was raining because his face was soaking wet. That was blood. He fractured his skull. The back of his head was basically scalped, causing bone fragments to lodge in his brain and an artery in his neck was severed. The wreck was on the border of LA and Culver City, so it took 45 minutes for any official help to come. While he was laying in the gutter, all jacked up, Van said, I'll roll to whatever side of the street can get me help the quickest. Van did not lose consciousness the entire time. That is 
awful. Joan Crawford sent him flowers and Spencer Tracy came to the hospital and offered to give his own blood because Van had lost three quarts. Evie had back issues because of this, but everyone else was fine. Eddie Mannix came to see him the next day and in the hallway, Van heard Eddie say his career was probably over. Mayer wanted to replace him in the film and when Spencer heard that, he informed LB that he wouldn't be filming, not even one more scene for him if he went through with it. Irene Dunn joined him on that promise. They both visited Van in the hospital three times a week and LB agreed to wait it out. Van was out of service for three months and he had to get a five inch metal plate in his head and he had scars all over his forehead. The girls loved the scars, but he couldn't fight in World War II because of this incident. He was very sensitive about that and he stayed away from the nightclubs, including the Hollywood canteen. Yet the majority of his films at this time were all him playing someone in the forces. Within his first two years at MGM, he was one of the top five money-making stars. Fan magazines made him into the boy next door, modest, friendly, they called him a hunk of Americana, the voiceless Sinatra, and a big burly Shirley Temple. All right. MGM wanted him and June Allison to start dating, both the next door type, but nothing sparked between them. He did date Kay Williams, who would later become Clark Gable's last wife. Van said that someone should start a school for brides to teach them how to be the best wives. A cook in the kitchen, a lovely hostess in the living room, a perfect mother, and an exciting woman at other times. He avoided realism, clearly. MGM and work were his refuge, but he had this fear, like almost a panic about losing it all. He was one of the stars who really played into the MGM is my family and LB was looking for a son and I was him story. Speaking of dads, his own came out to visit once and Van took him to Chasen's and told him he could order anything he wanted. His dad ordered a tuna fish sandwich and told Van that the working man didn't need to eat fancy food. He was invited to Hearst Castle for a weekend and that's when Van knew he finally made it to the top tier of Hollywood. Van and Keenan were cast in Easy to Wed, a remake of Libel Lady with Lucy in the Gene Harlow role. Keenan had his mouth wired the entire time because he was in a motorcycle accident where he fractured his jaw and was in a coma for 11 days. Don't drive anywhere with any of these people. As a matter of fact, the day of the accident was the day that he was supposed to report for duty to the Navy. He and Evie had separated, but because of his injuries, she wouldn't leave him. Since the three of them spent so much time together, there were rumors swirling that they were like a threesome. The publicity department at MGM asked if they had a situation with Van. My own gaydar didn't go off until I found that Van met Sonia Henney at a party and started calling her and sending her flowers. Sonia was married to Dan Topping at this time. He was the owner of the Yankees and brother of Bob Topping, one of Lana Turner's husbands that she tried to kill herself over. Van and Sonia spent two weeks together at Christmas time and he started wearing a pair of silver skates on his lapel. LB made a big deal over keeping them apart, which he later regretted because the gossip columnists started asking, why wasn't Van married? He's 30, like get it together. So this is why my gaydar went full tilt because of Sonia. She is the girl that Liberace said he was in love with and the one that got away. Plus Van always notices Eve's clothes. Straight guys don't do that. Keenan was not gay, so just FYI. When Eve finally did leave Keenan for good, Luella Parsons called and asked her point blank what the chances were of her marrying Van. She didn't respond, but all three of them kept going out together. It's kind of super weird. Even Edwin commented on it. He said, I can't keep them straight. Evie loves Keenan. Keenan loves Evie. Van loves Evie. Evie loves Van. Van loves Keenan. Keenan loves Van. Well, four hours after the divorce was finalized, Van and Evie got married. Evie and Keenan had two sons together. 
And the way that Keenan told the oldest one, Ned, about the news was he put him in front of the radio that night and had him listen to Walter Winchell break the news. Of course, Ned starts crying, so Keenan gave him a dollar and the nanny just took him off to bed. So bizarre. The public thought Van's career would totally be over because of this. Marrying your best friend's wife is not a great look. Evie was painted as a major social climber. MGM increased Van's salary to $5,000 a week and a bonus every time he completed a film because he fell in line and got married. Van ended up buying Dolores Del Rio's gigantic home, where she lived when she was married to Cedar Gibbon. It's still there, it's remodeled, of course. It's been in a bunch of movies, so you've probably actually seen this house. So a few years before she died, Evie spilled the beans on what really happened. She said, Mayer decided that unless I married Van Johnson, he wouldn't renew Keenan's contract. I was young and stupid enough to let Mayer manipulate me. Keenan got a great contract and Van's reputation was of course saved. I mean, it was better than the truth, which was he was performing at public urinals, George Michael style. What I don't understand is why not find someone who was not married to get married to? Van was friends with Henry Wilson. He had set Rock Hudson up with someone. Why not do it with Van? In addition to buying a beautiful new home, Van made sure Evie's wardrobe was upgraded and they became major party hosts. They were on par with Edie Goats, who came to the Johnson's parties. Some of their parties were casual, some were black tie, but there was always dinner. And Judy Garland would most nights be singing until 11.30 in the evening. At these parties or other events, Van was on. Super charming, sweet, exactly what you saw on screen. He never really had boys night out. He went over to Joan Crawford's the night she was sick and won her Oscar for Mildred Pierce. That's about as wild as he got. In addition to their own dinner parties, the Johnsons would go to parties and premieres three to four nights a week. In private, Van was quiet and moody. Ned Wynn said that if one thing wasn't exactly how Van liked it, he'd storm out of wherever they were, the house, vacation, wherever, and just go pout. He's an only child. Like, this does not surprise me. Both of the Wynn boys said Van was a decent stepdad, gave them everything they wanted and more, and they respected him for that, but they felt that they were never in their home. They were at Van's home. Evie said Van was a, quote, misogynist beyond compare. She thought he hated women because his mom left, but mom popped back up in 1946 to see him. She even went to Luella Parsons to try and sell her sob story. Luella tried to intervene for her and Van said his mom was trying to exploit him. Well, her story worked over at MGM because she was a nutritionist for years over there. How hard is that job? Take these pills to wake up, take these to go to sleep, increase if you need it. Oh, nutrition? Yeah, soup and a martini. Merry Christmas. In 1948, Van's only child, Skylar Van Johnson was born. She looked just like him. Evie did not bounce right back. This was her third C-section and Van was not really into parenting at all. So lots of nannies involved. MGM didn't really know what sort of films to put him in now that he was not the boy next door. Dory Sherry hadn't taken over MGM yet, but he was in charge of a movie called Battleground. The entire cast had to go through three weeks of basic training, like for boot camp. And two days in, Robert Taylor said, yeah, this isn't really me, I'm out. So since Van never said no to MGM, he got the part. Plus his career was kind of in limbo. Mayer was a petty bitch, we know this, and he was gunning for this movie to fail. But luckily for Van, it did not, it did very well. Most Sunday afternoons were spent at Claudette Colbert's house. She would host a group of amateur painters. So it was Gary Cooper, Dinah Shore, Henry Fonda, Lily Palmer, and Edward G. Robinson. He advised Van to get some paint, mess up the canvas, then straighten it out later. Things were not great at home. Van was getting moodier. He said he was staying married for Skylar and that he taught her to paint, to ride, to read books. 
in general, to develop her own resources to withstand the trauma of separation. Dory Sherry asked all the stars to take a pay cut, and Van, who was making $6,000 a week at this point, refused, and he said to hell with this, and started doing his own shows in Vegas. Mostly because Rosalind Russell said, you should do it. He only had 12 days to learn, but he sold out every single night he was at the Sands. He loved the audiences, but hated the nervous feeling he got before the show. Marlena Dietrich came to see him and said, Why do you make yourself miserable all day? Accept the fact that at a certain hour every night, you'll be frightened and have butterflies, but only that hour. Everybody who is good gets butterflies. Vegas was one thing, but going out all alone with his career was scary as hell. MGM spoiled the shit out of their stars, so after 12 years of never turning down a role and only asking for one raise, he left MGM. Let's freshen up our drinks before we get into the rest of his career. The first film he did was The Kane Mutiny. It was the first time he had a darker role and he said, I was in a career rut, Stanley Kramer saved my life. Since he didn't have a studio head slash father figure to please anymore, he started getting kind of bitchy on set. Brigadoon was filmed in Cinemascope with a fancy camera and they had to film the scenes twice, like once for Cinemascope, once for regular. And Van said, they need to pay me twice. Yeah, they didn't. Shut up Van, do your job. Then on the first day of shooting for The Last Time I Saw Paris, the production had to film a big crowd scene in downtown LA, like 500 people, and they needed Van for it. The director called him, he was in Palm Springs on vacation, and Van screamed into the phone, how dare you call me when I'm on my vacation? But he showed up and did a really good job with the scene. In 1955, the New York papers were reporting that the Vice Squad was watching Van, but wouldn't expand on the reasons why. I think we know. Honestly, I'm kind of bummed out that Van wasn't having an affair with someone that we actually would know. The following year, he returned to MGM to film Slander. That soundstage was right next to Jailhouse Rock. It made Van feel kind of old because no one was screaming for him anymore. He said it didn't bother him, but producer AC Lyle said no one enjoyed being a movie star more than Van Johnson. Although he didn't like TV, he needed money to maintain his lifestyle. So he agreed to do The Untouchables for Desilu until E.B. said they weren't giving him enough money and he quit at the last minute. Yeah, remember that from Desi's party? Well, Van definitely regretted it because the show was a really big deal for Robert Stack. He moved to Switzerland for four years and said it was the worst thing he could have done. It was super expensive living there, even though he got to have cool lunches with Charlie Chaplin and Audrey Hepburn. Van regretted it because he got less work. If he wasn't in Hollywood being seen, no one thought to use him in the movies. So because he's not working, things get worse at home. Ned said he heard Van push his mom over a table and then throw a chair at her. Then, once he hit Skylar so hard, she slammed her head into the wall. But no one was talking about what was going on at home because Van was physically a very large man and he made the money, so they all had to protect his career. Evie moved back to California and filed for divorce. Van stayed in Europe and went to the Cannes Film Festival. Shelley Winters was there and asked him, why aren't you doing Broadway? He actually had a letter back at the hotel from a producer asking him to do Damn Yankees. He was very nervous about it, but he agreed to do the show. When he got there, he asked Eve to meet him in New York. They had a long talk and he convinced her to drop the divorce. After his success with that play, they flew to London and he did The Music Man. The London papers reported that not since Danny Kaye had music worked more potent magic. They freaking love Danny Kaye over there, man. 
That fall, Van walked out on Evie for good. She said that he picked the fight that ended things, but she had seen him walking out of the theater after his show with one of the little dancer boys. Van told the press, one marriage is enough for me, thank you. Van got part of his finger chopped off on the set of The Music Man, then he got skin cancer, then he had a lymph node gland removed. Lucy said, Van is the survivingest damn survivor of us all. He ended up doing a ton of plays. Like the summer of 1963, he toured with Bye Bye Birdie, Damn Yankees, Music Man, and Guys and Dolls. During his divorce, Hedda Hopper slammed him for not spending time with his daughter. She ended up writing Hedda Hopper a note. You know things aren't great when a snake like this is getting thank you cards for reporting things correctly. It said, I want to thank you for writing the true things in your paper about my father and me. I've called him and written him, and I guess he's too busy to answer me. I love you for standing by mom and me and letting people know the truth about things. Van didn't pay the mortgage on the Beverly Hills or Palm Springs homes for Evie and the kids. She came home one day and there was a foreclosure notice and chains across the gate. He wouldn't give her money, yet Van buys himself a penthouse overlooking the East River and told the press that he was making tons of money and had loads of investments. When the divorce finally went through in 1968, Evie got 65% of his income and 50% of the real estate, which was foreclosed on, so like, nothing. In 1981, Evie had to sue him for $75,000 in back child support. Even his friends thought he was turning into a little shithead. Lucy, who had helped him get his career, said, I liked Van, but I thought he was a very selfish man. He had turned from a sweet kid into an egomaniac. Ned said that after their divorce, his mom had a steady stream of gay men over at their house for parties almost nightly. Well, the other hostesses in Beverly Hills had blackballed her. Evie had had two celebrity husbands. They didn't want her coming to their parties, scouting out her next one. Van started to feel more comfortable about his sexuality in public. In 1976, he was seen patting the thigh of a male reporter at a press luncheon. Then he propositioned a male store clerk at Neiman's, who was straight, so that went nowhere. Then in 1985, he agreed to do La Caja Fall on Broadway. He played the more masculine gay guy. He loved doing this role, probably because he was getting applause for being who he really was. But he was still an awful parent. Like, I, there's nothing to redeem this guy in that regard. In 1998, Skylar had a hysterectomy because she had cancer and Van didn't even call her. He wouldn't retire and he also wouldn't write his memoirs because he said it was too painful. In 1986, Keenan passed away. He did sober up for the last seven years of his life and he got married a few more times and had some more kids. He is currently buried next to his father at Forest Lawn Glendale. Evie died in 2004. Her ashes were scattered at sea and at the time of her death, she was getting together a book of old photos from her time in Hollywood. It's published, and it is called Van Johnson's Hollywood. Get that money, even if it's post-death, Evie. Get it. In 2002, Van finally moved into a retirement home, and he passed away on December 12, 2008. He never reconnected with his daughter, and his ashes are currently with a friend. Honestly, Van has a super impressive story. He made all of his dreams come true. And to the public, he was exactly what they ordered. But man, he was a terrible father and a not great husband. I want to answer our weekly question of will he be coming to our party, but I'm super torn. At parties, he was great. At home, he was not. But we're only talking about parties. So I think he's going to be our second wild card. I can't decide. Message me and let me know if you'd want him at the party or not. 
Including Van, the last three parties have been men, who, in my opinion, have been super underwhelming. Not in their careers, but as party guests, I'm not impressed. So we're switching to women next week, trying to turn this bus around. Tune in next time to find out who it is. Thanks for listening to Hollywood Party. For more information about this episode, head over to hollywoodpartypodcast.com and follow us on Instagram. If you like the show, tell every single person you know. Like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Anchor or however you're listening to us. And see you next week. Hollywood.